Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Not only is Bluehost Cloud our fastest web hosting available, but it's also built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together, because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. A quick reminder, as usual, before we get started, if you like the show, I hope you do, and you're on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving me a review, a rating, a star, something I really need to know that you care. On the show today, returning champion Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune, founder at Suntra Modern Recovery. This is JL's third time on the program, but what makes this appearance even more remarkable is that we tape the show in person in person we're both fully vaxxed and i think i was the first person he'd seen in real life since the pandemic of course he has family but you know what i mean besides being a medical doctor with an mba from wharton jl is funny as hell he's got a slick wit great insights into public health and consumer behavior so join us today on the show as we embark on a no stupid questions rampage about all the fuckery afoot about things maybe getting back to normal? Let's find out. Jean-Luc Neptune, live in person, here in my studio. Holy shit. <laughs> Hi, man. How are you? Thanks for the invite. It's nice to see you. And I mean, see you in person. Are we doing better in terms of, is this normal? Are we hopeful for normal? Uh, I I think we're getting better. I think we're turning a corner. I think we're making progress. I think that mass vaccination has had a, a real clinical impact. I think you're already starting to see it reflected in hospitalizations and deaths. So I think that's really significant. And I think that there is a lagging piece to this of what you might call consumer uh, psychology or individual psychology, where people start to get more comfortable and more confident. And as I explained to you, you know, I got my second Moderna shot about two and a half weeks ago. I got my shot on a Saturday. And the Monday after that, two days after getting it, I was planning business meetings with people that I knew were already vaccinated. I was looking into a WeWork uh, spot. So I think that this vaccination drive is definitely helping. And I think we're getting there. I still think we have many, many months away. And I think that COVID is going to be with us for 
a long time, maybe years. But in terms of trying to get back to a semi-normal life where people like me and you can meet in person and talk business and be regular human beings and regular New Yorkers, I think that's that's happening now. And I think by the end of, you know, by summertime, I think we'll be fairly normal, you know? It must be fascinating to wear both an MD hat and an MBA hat in a time of such social disruption, how the free market has responded to consumer sentiment and how science and medicine is trying to live somewhere in between them in terms of hesitancies and trust and how, as of this recording, uh, they pulled the J&J vaccine because six women out of seven million doses have shown. And they're like, one in 10,000 women get clots from the birth control pill. One in one million women get clots from the J&J vaccine. What's your thoughts on public sentiment and awareness and messaging? I mean, I, I think J&J is um, the J&J vaccine is really a quandary because, you know, at a time where we're trying to build confidence in these vaccines, you know, a lot of people are looking for reasons not to get vaccinated. And I think that, you know, as a physician, as you mentioned, you know, uh, one of the hats I wear, you walk a fine line, you know, you want to try to make things as safe as possible, right? And and make sure that, you know, whenever we talk about new drugs or new interventions, we're always talking about safety and efficacy. And I don't think people understand how much doctors and other people involved in the approval of medications worry about safety and how important that is. But, you know, you really have to ask yourself in a in a vaccine trial where you're seeing one in a million events at the same time that you're seeing lots of vaccine hesitancy and people looking for reasons not to get vaccinated, whether it really made sense to pull the vaccine. Again, I'm I'm not the, the FDA, so I don't see all the things that they see. But I think there's a real challenge here between the public sentiment and this huge group of people who are vaccine hesitant, who are distrustful of the government and distrustful of doctors and our need to get people vaccinated. And, you know, the other group of people like us who are lining up to get vaccinated right. so that we can get back to the normal world. It's very challenging. Yeah. One of my colleagues was at a CVS getting her vaccinations. And normally you're at a CVS lined up like and everyone's just chit chatting, whatever. She said everyone who was waiting that 15 minutes to see if like they flaked out after you get vaccinated was like giggling with joy. <laughs> They're like, I can't wait to get back to life. I sure. did this thing. And you got to wonder, like, where are other people getting this perspective of either disinformation, which we know is very obvious in the media versus a hesitancy because they just don't have the capacity to understand the science. But at the same time, should we expect them to have to understand the science? Because quite honestly, it's science's job to speak science, but who's interpreting that to the average person, right? Right. And, and, and I think the big problem is the the people who are communicating the information to individuals, many of them are communicating disinformation and probably doing it intentionally. So right as as trolling, as entertainment or maybe as just as part of their philosophy of being against vaccination, being against the government. So, you know, I, I think when we talked the second time that we spoke, we talked a lot about this. We talked about disinformation. We talked about, you know, how do you get people the truth? And I still don't think we've found an answer for that a year into the into the pandemic. Um, I have a my wife was telling me about a friend of hers whose mother died of COVID. She married into a family where there were a number of people who supported the former guy. Right. And apparently those people were not wearing masks at the funeral or they were cleaning out the house, they were not making, they're not wearing masks. They were making fun of her for wearing a mask and for being overly cautious. And there's just a lot of Americans who are living in a different information reality. And 
I don't know if we figured out the answer to that yet. You know, when we did our show more than a year ago, yeah. like you were like my third or fourth <laughs> guest on this show, we, we talked about like it was colloquial, but how we're going to see how states' rights and sort of citizen information disinformation are going to be their own um, viral eugenics in a sense. And where I want to go with this question is that we saw that California and Florida took very opposite perspectives. California's like, quick and hide. And Florida's like, what's COVID? <laughs> and at the end of the day, they ended up with the same net per capita number of diagnoses and deaths. Do you attribute that to compliance? Uh, well, I, I think it's important to remember that we talk about California and we talk about Florida as if they're monoliths, right? They're right. giant states. You know, Florida's population is what, 20 million? California's population is 40 million. And, you know, those states are as heterogeneous as New York is. And I think maybe the net, you know, the net net result being the same has to be interpreted through all the different communities that exist, right? So even within Los Angeles, you know, you, you could say Los Angeles is very educated, you know, blue state type people who are running to get the vaccine. Los Angeles is also a lot of working class new immigrants who might be more reluctant to take the vaccine. So I think, yes, there is the strategy that the states take and, you know, how they approach their public health efforts. But there's also the underlying substrate of the people and how they respond to those things and the resources those people have. And, you know, I think it's 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 very complicated. You know? Well, like a social bell curve, per se. Yeah, right. So whether Florida said what's COVID or not, a certain portion of the population is still going to be more risk averse and want to mask up and want to protect themselves. But a certain population of Florida is not. Yeah. And the same could be true of California, too. So the net balance really is that ideal median bell curve for right. compliance. And I think also this is a story that's... Um still in progress. You know, the pandemic is nowhere near over. You know, we're still talking about, I don't know what the number of deaths per day in the United States is, but it's still a significant number of people are dying of COVID. Um, I think that once the pandemic is done, and, you know, certainly once we've gotten to the point where all the people who want to be vaccinated have been vaccinated, then I think you might start to see differences in the philosophy, right? In, you know, the individual states or counties or cities philosophies. And I continue to believe that you know, and this was proven in 1918 with the flu pandemic, the areas that were most conservative in their approach to the to the pandemic did the best in terms of deaths, economic uh, turnaround. And I think that will still be proven in the future. And that goes to my question we talked about before the show, this notion of sort of geo-targeted herd immunity, mm -hmm. right? Herd mentality, according to the last guy, <laughs> but herd immunity, which I think still people don't understand quite what that means. And I don't want to make this a one on one explainer, but clearly we talked about like there are pockets of blue and pockets of red and pockets of purple. And those communities may have their own herd behavior, per se. Are we looking at herd immunity potentially in geo targeted locations? As I mean, it's like saying the 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 P part of the pool is over here, but. <laughs> is that a thing we could think about? I, I always love that uh, that uh, <laughs> that analogy. There is no uh, peeing section in a pool, right? <laughs> so I always find that funny. Um, I think uh, you know what it's probably going to come down to is, as you know, you, we live here in New York City, right? There are eight and a half million people in New York, and I think 
if you don't live in New York, you don't really understand that in New York, yes, it's a big city, but most of us live in relatively small communities. So, you know, I live on the Upper West Side. My kids do West Side Little League. You know, most of our friends live within a five or 10 block radius. Almost all of those friends are lining up first thing to get vaccinated. So, you know, I think what's probably going to happen is maybe it's a geolocation, but it's almost like a, you know, like your your cohort location or I, I, your tribe location, whatever tribe you're part of is going to determine how people do. And I think, you know, in New York, we're going to start to feel very, I'm going to walk into a birthday party where I'm going to be comfortable going because I know that every single person in that party has sort of a similar mindset and is probably vaccinated. I know I'm vaccinated myself. And I think that's going to be like, you know, the herd immunity part you know we we just know that mini herd that mini tribe is immune. like a microcosmic herd moment micro right microcosmic herd moment and then people like me are going to avoid places where we think that we might be interacting with another herd that is not vaccinated so for instance you know i've told my wife like look We've been in this house for a year. We need to do a big trip. We need to go to the Grand Canyon or something. My wife said, absolutely not. We are not getting on an airplane. And she's right. Like an airplane, it might be one of those places where I might be exposed to somebody in a herd that's not vaccinated. There is a guy named uh, Robert Pearl. I was on a, a, a Zoom panel with him yesterday. He was the former C CEO of Kaiser Permanente, and he wrote a book called Uncaring. And the, the panel was a little bit about his book. But he said that he was flying on a, he was on a flight from San Diego to New York, and the woman sitting behind him was coughing the whole flight. She was flushed, red-faced, like COVID until proven otherwise. And when he mentioned that, I was like, you know, I, I can't protect that. If some if I show up in my seat and the person behind me is COVID, I can't do anything about it. I'm vaccinated. I think I'm protected. But is it a Brazil variant? Is it a South African variant? I don't know. And I think not getting into those environments is probably a safe thing. So let's go back to your MBA hat, because that's a perfect way to go into this other conversation of how the free market may decide to create these vaccine-only concierge moments and mm -hmm. travel and hospitality. And we're seeing this in the cruise ships, like the, many of the cruise ships are like you must present proof of vaccination through some kind of passport. We'll get to the passports in the second part of the show and people are losing their shit. Why can't I go on this thing? <laughs> but I mean, as a sidebar, you know, most cruise ships in America leave out of Florida and DeSantis said you can't do this. So the cruise ships are pissed. But if you like fly to, I don't know, like Mexico and take a cruise, there are vaccine only doesn't rule out the Ebola shit that happens with the other food stuff. <laughs> right. But can you foresee a moment where like JetBlue or Delta will start to create vaccine only flights if that meets kind of their margins for their revenue model? A absolutely. And I think for a lot of these businesses, the only way that they can get back to semblance of normal is by creating confidence for the customers that they want. So at the end of the day, it's going to be, you know, jet, the JetBlue customer is different from a NASCAR customer. And I'm making a, a general assumption, right? I think most JetBlue uh, customers Speak for yourself. are, you know, liberal elites, if you will. And I think most of them are their target customer wants to be in an environment where they feel safe, where they feel other people have been vaccinated. And even though they may be vaccinated themselves, they don't want to be exposed to people who have not been vaccinated. So I can easily see JetBlue saying, you know, no shoes, no shirt, no vaccine, no service, you know. And as I was walking along here on uh, Fulton, I saw a deli that said that had a sign in the front that said no mask, no service. And I could easily see somebody adding a thing that, on top of it that says no evidence of vaccination, no mask, no service.
I love that idea of, I mean, do you think that would create some degree of consumer guilt or pressure? Like, hey, I want to join the Cool Kids Club, like when Facebook was EDU only, right? Uh-huh. What do you think about that? I, I think it will create some pressure. But remember, we have a weird psychology. I think a lot of people are going to start to say, well, F you, uh, brand X, that's forcing me to get vaccinated. Boycott this, boycott that. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, and we're seeing it now with the MLB, you know, unrelated right. to vaccination, more around the Georgia voting law. Right. But all of a sudden, baseball, which is their fan base is largely a Caucasian white American fan base, all of a sudden people are turning against MLB because of their involvement in uh, the Georgia voting restriction situation. So I think that might be the next stage is hyper polarization where, you know, maybe JetBlue used to be 70% coastal elites, 30% red staters or whatever it is. You know, maybe JetBlue becomes just all blue because their customers who might be from red areas, and again, I'm making very broad generalizations, say, we're not flying with you. We're going to be flying with Southwest or whatever other airline is more permissive. Cue the business plan for Jet Red. (laughs) Jet Red, exactly. Because I'm still perseverating on this notion that people are going to say, you're infringing on my freedoms and liberties. And people don't really understand at large that a private business can do what the fuck it wants and you have no control over it. Right. But I want to take this conversation to children and schools, Mm -hmm. which is something that has been driving us crazy as parents of young kids since this started and millions of other parents of young kids and largely like elementary school, maybe early middle school. Do you feel that it's right for public school systems, taxpayer dollar public school systems to mandate the COVID vaccine to children when it's available as part of the same MMR requirements and early childhood vaccinations, no vaccines, no public school. I, I'm a physician. I support that position. I think, you know, uh, it, it raises very complicated questions uh, about individual rights versus the rights of a community of people and, you know, ties so much into our, our history. And we forget as Americans, you know, how many hundreds of years of history f- tie into these decisions and these laws. But, you know, I, I, I think if you're going to require kids to have the measles, mumps and rubella shot to be polio vaccinated, if we have this pandemic ongoing that is way more deadly than the flu, way more infectious than the flu, it'd be insane not to mandate COVID uh, a requirement for a COVID vaccine. So I, if I have an opportunity to vote on that or to support a candidate who's going to make that policy, I, I'll do that. Back with our guest after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. 
Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So let's pick up on kids, mm-hmm. right? As of right now, of this recording, I think the vaccine is available for what, 15-year-old minimum? Six, 16 and over. And I heard 100% efficacy for some of the vaccines? I think one trial so far involving children, I think that was the Pfizer vaccine, and 100% uh, efficacy, right? And the way they look at efficacy is they look at the number of cases in the unvaccinated population compare. So if you have a thousand people vaccinated, you have a hundred people who are diagnosed with uh, COVID uh, in the unvaccinated population, and that goes to zero in the vaccinated population, then you'd say 100% efficacy in preventing infection. So let's talk about another bell curve, which goes back to like the Gardasil conversation is if you're a minor and you want to get vaccinated for your own personal needs, your parents are still in charge of allowing that to happen. Right. I, I think so. I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know about that. I think, I do think that as a child, um, you require your parents' approval. And I, and I guess if you're a kid and your parents don't want you to be vaccinated, I guess you can't be forced, I don't think. Because I'd hate to see, and I'm sure we're going to see, tons of teenagers in certain markets that mm-hmm. want to get vaccinated because they're of a, a different political perspective and a different generational vantage. And their parents don't want that for them because they have different purposes and views. Yep. And and, and look, you know, your your kids are in public school, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, as, as you know, we've had as parents, public school parents, we've had a choice between doing in person and doing virtual. And I think, you know, when the decision comes down that you have to, and I do believe that the the DOE will require children to be vaccinated, for the parents who say that they don't they don't want it, I think they'll they'll be able to say we deserve some accommodation because of our our views or our beliefs, and I think you'll have a virtual only cohort of students who are you know getting classes uh, while the other cohort of kids are in school five days a week. It makes you wonder how the whole. Um, private sector, no shirt, no shoes, no service applies to public health in taxpayer funded mechanisms like public schools. Sure, sure. And, and and remember, like, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I did a little law. School. You play one on TV. <laughs> I, I did take a, a bunch of law classes when I was an undergraduate and in business school. You know, you can't discriminate on based on somebody's gender, their religion, their race, uh, and then there's sort of their creed. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, they can say, well, our creed is that we don't want to be forced to be vaccinated. So I, I, I could see this kind of thing being 
litigated in the courts and making its way to the Supreme Court as to whether the state can force individuals to be vaccinated against uh, the coronavirus. I I think that'll happen. I mean, the whole point of all of this was like states' rights, states' rights. And thankfully, now there's federal leadership guiding the states that can choose to do certain things in a more uh, structured way. Mm-hmm. I'd hate to see this go to a federal conversation to, to decide states' rights on public health. Yeah. It's like the speed limit, right? In Montana, you can go as fast as you want because it's Montana. Right. But here it's 25 on Ocean Parkway and I want to kill myself. <laughs> but let's let's talk about that in terms of like the class warfare conversation. If there are communities of color or of disenfranchisement or socioeconomic disparities who would love to get the vaccine but can't, and their children can't go to public school because they can't get the vaccine, does that create another Morlock Elor thing like from Time Machine? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it does, but I I do think, you know, the the word of the day in healthcare is equity. And it's amazing how many panels and discussions I've watched recently where people are talking about vaccine equity. So I think in the early part of the pandemic, you know, from the time that the vaccine was first approved, I think communities of color, underprivileged or underserved communities have been vaccinated less. But I think there's a huge effort to catch up and get those communities vaccinated and get people on par, uh, you know, get the, the country on par, regardless of where you live or what you look like or what your income is like. Because at the end of the day, even if you're vaccinated, if that virus is spreading rampantly through other communities, it could still impact you. As we as we talked before we got online, if variants develop because a group of people is un, uh, unvaccinated and that va- variant can break through your vaccine, it hurts you, you know? So you may be vaccinated, but, and, and may think that other people not being vaccinated doesn't hurt you. We're all sort of tied together, especially when it comes to a pandemic. And the, the better job we can do getting everybody vaccinated quickly, the better off I think we'll all be. I want to focus on that specific health equity conversation because it's been a narrative for God knows how many years. I mean, just from your perspective, I mean, pandemic notwithstanding, you've been working in the space for a long time now. Has that needle moved at all? And if so, what have been the influencers to, like we talk about trial awareness and traditional cancer-based things and stuff, whatever. I just totally derailed the science of cancer things and stuff. (laughs) What's your take on the last decade or 15 years or so on health equity? I mean, I, I don't have data, but I think the mere fact that we talk about health equity And you see it in headlines. You see it all over the digital health space. People are concerned about health equity. I think that's very significant. I think the consciousness has changed. And I think that people have come to understand that there is an inequitable sharing of health resources, or traditionally there has been. And going back to what I was saying before, that that has an impact on everybody, right? That we are all connected in many ways. So um, I think you're seeing investments in startups that are are trying to solve that problem. I think you're seeing state and federal funding directed at equity or inequities and addressing those inequities. I think we have a long and complicated history. I think those those inequities run very deep and you know we're a long way off from addressing or equalizing, if you will. But I do think that there is a, a change in consciousness. And and some of it is like George Floyd changed people's consciousness. And, you know, seeing uh, some of these videos that we saw, that guy Dante Wright who got shot, I think that's changing. That has nothing to do with healthcare, but I think that's changing people's perspective as well and getting people to realize that health equity is a problem. And it's unfortunate we need such shock value to change hearts and minds, which is just ludicrous in my mind. Yeah. 
So what are you working on these days? And and how has the pandemic either fucked up or helped what you're working on these days? <laughs> so I, I'm working on what I was working on when I first spoke with you or uh, last time we spoke, Suntra Modern Recovery, uh, hellosuntra.com. And, um, you know, what we do is we are a modern system for helping individuals and families get access to the addiction resources that they need. And we really have two customers that we work with or two groups. We work with families who have an addicted member of their family who needs help. So we can do an intervention, help people find the right treatment setting, uh, do at-home detox and things like that. And then for the addicted person, the person who's dealing with the substance use disorder, we can provide intensive recovery coaching. Uh, we can support them before and after they go to treatment and provide a much more intensive, immersive uh, environment for treatment that allows them to get treated more intensely for a longer period of time. And the evidence shows that the longer you're treated, the more intensely you're treated, the better that you'll do. Um, so we've been doing that. We've been, we've grown the business quite a uh, bit since we last talked. Um, we are looking to raise a little bit of money as we speak. And, um, you know, in terms of this pandemic, I think the pandemic made addiction crisis much worse because, you know, for so many people, they were stuck in their homes. They didn't have the same outlets they had. You know, f for a long time, it was hard to find an in-person uh, AA meeting. You know, if you did find one, you're doing, you know, you're standing outside in the cold in a church parking lot or something like that. Um, so, I, you know, and obviously stress can exacerbate an addiction. So, you know, show me a uh, a situation where people are worried about dying, they're worried about their incomes, they're worried about their communities. I mean, all those things really uh, come together to make addiction worse for a lot of people. So we've definitely seen uh, it pick up. Yeah, I don't have the data in front of me right now, but suicide is up a tremendous percentage because of the pandemic, especially in teenagers. Although interesting that and you doctors. Say, although interesting that you say that, I saw some published data for 2020 that suicides nationally were down six percent in 2020 across the border across the board and again like anything right i mean there might be certain populations where the numbers are up maybe in children maybe in addicted populations but i think actually the number that i saw was that the suicides were down six percent because i have a colleague who works at a hospital in minnesota okay and she had four people on the staff killed themselves last year right so it's staff right right so you know if you told me that physician and nurse suicide rates were up 50 percent, I, I could believe that Right, because it's been so, in many ways, this is the unseen part. So many people are like, well, you know, COVID doesn't impact me. I, you know, I live, in, uh, I live in a place where nobody has it. It's not a big deal. They don't understand that physicians and nurses and other healthcare people have been getting burned out uh, and are leaving the profession. Uh, suicide rates are up. So what that means now is when you need to go get your healthcare, the doctor or the nurse who would have taken care of you is not there or they're less engaged, they're less capable of doing their jobs because they've been punished relentlessly by this COVID pandemic for the last year. And, uh, you know, that, I, I totally believe that number that you mentioned of four doctors or whatever have killed themselves. So let's talk about hope, mm -hmm. right? Let's wrap up with some hope. We're looking at these potential geo-targeted herd immunity moments in different cities and, you know, the peace out of the pool notwithstanding, but vaccinations are going to be up. Where are you on optimism over the next couple of weeks, couple of months? Uh, I alluded to before, I, am, I feel much better than I did even four weeks ago, right? Even before my first shot. I'm much more optimistic now. I think the mood in the country is more optimistic, again, as 
as people have the ability to get vaccinated, they're, you know, if you want a vaccine now, you can, you know, there are endless appointments you can get at the Javits Center. Anybody can go. Um, I think that being able to get vaccinated creates a lot of hope. Understanding that once you've been vaccinated, your chances of getting very sick, your chances of dying uh, go down a lot. I think that makes people feel optimistic. Uh, the notion that the weather is getting better and now I can get together with unvaccinated or with vaccinated people and you know have a barbecue or play a soccer game and have fun. I think I'm much more optimistic than I was before. And I think that's only going to build as we sort of come back together as a community. I still think it's a long fight. Um, I remember Fauci saying that masks are going to be with us through the end of 2021. Uh, I can believe that. I think we'll be battling these uh, variants to some degree. I think, you know, this is not you and I have both been vaccinated. This is not our last vaccine. I think we'll be we'll have to get boosters. We'll have to get revaccinated again. Um, I think we're going to be dealing with a big part of the population that doesn't want to get vaccinated. So those are we're, we're not out of the woods yet. But I think, you know, compared to where we were four weeks ago, six months ago or when we talked in March of 2020 or February 2020, we're in a much, much better place now than we were then. No shirt, no shoes, no vaccine, no service. JL Neptune, my good friend from God knows how many years ago, hashtag Halogica, the founder of Suntra Modern Recovery. My God, it's good to physically see you and to have you back on the show. All right. And thank you for having me back and uh, look forward to collaborating more in the future. HelloSuntra.com. HelloSuntra.com. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seeley, Jen Orange, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.